0: You know what really makes us mad? Is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell me about punk!
1: Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod, I'm your go host Justin Hensley, and it's just me today, because today we're doing not a regular episode of the show. Between last Thursday and today, I've been non-stop either go-go-go sick or work, and go-go-go again. So, we really did not have much time to record an episode this week, it's just been, it's been a mess. Uh, the wife and I got... Stomach viruses that have take that took us both out for days, and uh, got a new car last week. So all the process of getting a new car, and then it had a few things that need to be worked on, and planning all that stuff, and going to my job, and you know, it's just been a lot lately. So we weren't able to do an episode, but we are going to provide for you today a sneak peek behind the curtain of what it's like in our Patreon bonus audio. So over on our Patreon for one dollar you get access to all of our weekly bonus audio. That includes whatever Dylan and I record that week, plus a new release Friday bonus audio that I always do every week, and any other random ideas that I come up with, special side podcasts that I do, Moon Pies for Misfits videos where I try out different snacks and drinks, lots of different stuff. Uh, so I'm hoping that uh, for $1 it intrigues you enough, but if, if none of that does, then this teaser should uh sweeten the pot so what we're gonna do is we're gonna replay the bonus episode that we did with dave brown that corresponded with our pretty in pink soundtrack episode so we did this i want to say last year and we had a great time we did we covered the soundtrack on the show and then over on the patreon we reviewed the movie so this this corresponds with that bonus episode and uh, I really hope you enjoy this. This is really fun. If you hadn't heard the Pretty and Pink one or you haven't listened to it in a while, go back and check that one out. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And if you're more interested in what's going on on the Patreon, I just recorded something called The Comps That Made Us. It's a series I've been kicking around in my head where I take uh, different compilations that I've listened to growing up and, you know, analyzing them and talking about them. So I put the first one of those up now It is on This Is Solid State Volume 2, which was a metal and hardcore compilation. My first exposure to that type of music, really. So, I had really fun doing the notes for that and recording and everything. So, hopefully you all enjoy it. All of that's on Patreon.com slash PunkLottoPod. You can head over to all of our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PunkLottoPod. Email PunkLottoPod at gmail.com and our voicemail line, which is 202-688-PUNK. But yeah, we should be back next week. Uh, Dylan and I are already planning on recording this week, so no worries there. And um, yeah, I really hope you enjoy this conversation we had with Dave about the movie. And I I really do hope you go back and check out the uh, Pretty in Pink soundtrack episode we did too. So Thank you, everyone, and uh, we will see you next week. What's up patrons? Uh I'm Dylan. Uh that's Justin. And that's Dave Brown. And we're doing a movie. What are we doing today? <laughs> I let Dylan drive this one for a change, so. Doesn't work. There's a reason I don't. <laughs> uh yeah, we're doing a master punk theater. For the first time with a guest, this is a first yes. Patreon with a guest. Yeah,
2: that's true. Yeah. yeah. So yes, I uh, I came up with this idea after I forgot to uh, turn off the ten dollar part <laughs> on the Patreon, and Justin was like, "You want a refund?" I was like, "No, if, uh, I'll just I plan on doing this like four times a year and every anyway. So uh, you guys get a lot too much of me every year. Uh, <laughs> but um, as we were just kind of talking, I was like, you know what would be cool is to do this soundtrack and this movie at the same time and uh thankfully Justin liked the idea so here we are to talk about one of the uh best movies of the 1980s in my humble opinion quite possibly the best John Hughes movie uh, Pretty in Pink yeah
1: came out in 1986 which we recently just did like an 86 chart dive because I pulled that up and I was like oh we've just talked about all this stuff <laughs> but <laughs> oh, I think we even... should
2: have pulled up movies from 86 to talk about didn't even oh, think about that 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 have been interesting
1: yeah that have been a little different
2: we mm-hmm. we that pop- right now. Yeah. yeah we could well not you Dylan your computer's going yeah
1: crash. don't crash your computer Dylan
2: <laughs> get your phone out sir <laughs> <laughs> you hear a whirring in the background
1: <laughs> it's getting real hot in here <laughs> it's heating up the room you know uh, your Rate Your Music also has a movie version of their site so I'm going to look at that and see what they show Ooh. Oh. Also, Cine- you can
2: check it on Letterboxd, too.
1: Oh, yeah. Letterboxd is actually probably way cooler and way easier to use than uh, whatever this weird site's going to be. I mean, you, I'm just going to Google 1986 <laughs> movies. So. Let, I'm going to go to Letterboxd. Yeah. That's on the phone. Because this Cinemos is loading so slowly. All <laughs> right. a, f- a fun year in movies, actually.
2: Oh, wow, um, Yeah. So uh, let's see. So I also just I Googled letterboxed and then got a little search bar for the website and typed in 1986. And uh, let's see here. Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
1: Yeah. That kind that of way? a John Hughes movie. He wrote it. He didn't direct it, right? Where's yeah. that one he actually directed, too? I think he directed he, that one.
2: I think he directed that yeah, one. Yeah, he directed. Yeah. Blue Velvet.
1: That's my favorite Brat Pack movie. Yeah. Ferris that Bueller. And, that and the Fly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Aliens. Uh, yeah, Aliens, what else? Stand By Me, Top Gun, ooh, we got some Tom Cruise in here. Uh, Howard the Duck.
1: Oh, hell yeah, Leah Thompson. That um, movie's terrible, but she's great yeah. in it.
2: <laughs> she's kind of great in everything.
1: Yeah, you know? she really is. I'm sure, she has like a TV show where she's like the mother of orphans or something like that. She's like their stepmother or some adopted mother.
2: Interesting.
1: But it's, but it's like her real daughter. I don't know. It's weird. It's like okay. a... Freeform disney family show which is what she's been doing probably for like 10 years wow uh a heavy metal parking lot there's a good uh oh yeah it's a that's fun. a good master punk theater um contender it's actually kind of a few movies that i feel like would fit ferris bueller i i feel like this soundtrack is kind of puts it in the in our lane um there was something else that was more Sid obvious nancy.
2: did nancy yeah yeah, yep. yeah it's a big, big one, one. You know that movie made me kind of dislike the uh, Sex Pistols. I was like, "Wow, y'all are terrible people."
1: (laughs) Yeah, I tried to watch that movie one time, and I was like, "I can't finish this," just because like the character, like the version of the I say characters, the characters in a movie, they were just so grating that I was like, "I can't finish this." Yeah, Um, I think watching, probably watching like a Sex Pistols documentary is kind of what build a lot of my interest in them <laughs> early on. Cause it was, it was, it was soon enough into being like, it was early into being into punk and watch and being kind of into the sex pistols. And then like, feel like watching that documentary about like just one of those, whatever documentaries that does their whole story. I'm like, yeah, they kind of think, <laughs> mm.
2: you know, I, I had a similar experience watching a Ramones documentary where i came out of it going uh how these people all kind of suck
1: <laughs> the ramones i think i didn't know enough of the shitty things about them until i was so far into their music that it's kind of it's one of those like hmm wish i'd known these things sooner <laughs> yeah. particularly johnny yeah he's he's
2: Yeah, but I mean, that gets it all in not to get deep here, but that gets into the question of art versus artist. And can you like someone's art and dislike either them as a person or them as their beliefs and whatnot. And I think that's something that happens far too often where people just like find something they don't like about somebody and all of a sudden they decide to just completely crap all over everything they've ever done. And it's, it's not that life is fair, but that is definitely not fair. Uh, not that I'm defending Johnny Ramone or anything because by all rights, he's an absolute or was, I think he's dead. Do you yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. They're all gone.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. I've, I've probably talked about this on the show before. I feel like it's just one of those things where it's like, if I can't stop it from happening, like retroactively, uh, you know, yeah. like it's not like a time travel situation. Like, and, and when you're dealing with people that are like, have had such cultural significance where it's like yeah like john Lennon's a piece of shit but like whatever (laughs) like his influence on you know i'm not invested in the beatles but his influence on music and and culture is like it's so significant that it's just like we we can't not have that we're not gonna throw that away you know i don't know right and it's one of the and it's it's too easy to just go further and further back into time and being like well everyone well, sucked to a point
2: yeah <laughs> yeah and i mean honestly doesn't it doesn't at to a point kind of everyone does suck and mm-hmm. everyone's had uh, moments where they've done really stupid things that they probably regret and the 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 idea of of painting someone's entire life by their worst night or their worst day is kind of a kind of crappy i mean don't we believe in in um redemption anymore yeah
1: and i mean uh, you know i to go further down the uh <laughs> cancel culture sucks (laughs) track i i say all of my my caveats for like all of the old culture that i'm pop culture that i'm interested in where it's like the people were demonstrably bad people like all that to say like i that doesn't mean that we shouldn't i don't feel like we shouldn't hold people accountable today like that's why i say like if i can't fix it with a time machine i'm not you know, if I have to have a time machine to fix it, I'm I'm not worried about it. But like, there's things that I can do now that don't require me to go, you know, bend the laws of time and space. Yeah, like, that, yeah. I you can you can hold people accountable now. So that's kind of where I I sit on canceling yeah. people.
2: <laughs> that is fair, and that that's a debate that no one is ever going to solve, I think, or at least and certainly not us right now.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say this is a weird way to start a pretty in pink. Uh, <laughs> i know right <laughs> movie that discussion. said actually i think it does bear somewhat on our discussion of this movie because I was i had some thoughts along those lines while watching this movie and how it fits into the broader context of the movies of the time period so we can get into that stuff when we actually get into the movie but yeah let's let's see um needless to say 86 surprisingly good year for movies
2: um, yeah, uh, a couple know. others that I just wanted to point out, real quick, if I may. Uh, Star Trek IV, otherwise known as the one with the whales.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is that the one with the whales? <laughs> yes, that movie is
2: outstanding. I, in the last two years, I've really gotten back into Star Trek, and it's, I just, I love that whole um, franchise, and uh, that's a, that's a fantastic movie. It's a great fish out of water story too. What else? Maximum Overdrive is one of the creepiest movies. If you've never seen this the whole thing is about a truck. No wait, that's dual. I always get Maximum Overdrive and <laughs> dual mixed up. Is Maximum Overdrive the one with the ACDC soundtrack?
1: Yes, it is. Yeah,
2: yeah. okay. So this one gave us Who Made Who, which just right <laughs> yeah. there is good enough for its existence.
1: Um, speaking of canceled people and also movies that could work uh, <laughs> or a Masterpunk Theater labyrinth. Yeah, um, I mean what, Bowie is like he's soft canceled. Uh, it's one of the he's one of those. Anytime you talk about Bowie, there's always someone who's like, but but it's he, like, he, yeah, he did. He slept with a teenager, like that kind of people. The people bring that stuff up. It's like, yeah,
2: he did. Yeah, yeah, know? but I mean, if you were a teenager and you had the chance to sleep with David Bowie, <laughs> I mean, would you say no? Probably not. <laughs> Let's be honest.
1: The. Um, They've talked to the woman who it was, and she's always been like, "It was a loving relationship. It was a very nice relationship." She, so it's always like, "All right, okay, I guess it's," yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a weird, yeah. Gray area. Someone, yeah. Someone not wanting to say that it was a bad thing doesn't mean that it wasn't a bad thing. Yeah, I don't know.
2: Very true. Person,
1: but, but the person they, who experienced it, I, yeah, but, yeah. We can we can move on. Big Trouble in Little China. That that was the one I was going to bring up. I love Big Little Big. What did I say? Big lover, in little Big Lebowski, China. Big Lebowski in Little China. Uh, that would be a good movie too. You know, they've talked about The Rock starring in that, like a remake of that movie for years now. It wouldn't work the same way unless he was doing that. What was his name? Jack Burton, like that. It it could work. He has to play it the same way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has to be an idiot who doesn't actually like contribute to any of the, you know. Success of the mission or whatever, like yeah. <laughs> which I which don't. The think- Rock, I feel like The Rock could play that. I just I don't think that a big studio would want him to play it that way. Yeah, is the problem.
2: Well, I mean, it's gonna have The Rock, so it's gonna make a boat ton of money, no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one of those those few people in the world who is generally overall kind of beloved. I think I think it. I, at this point, there are only two people I really know that I can think of in the world that almost everyone agrees on that they like, if not love uh, Dolly Parton and the rock uh, <laughs> uh, Betty white was in that list, but sadly she has passed away. So instead of having three people, everyone agrees on, we now only have two and Molly Ringwald. Oh, she's <laughs> Molly Ringwald rules.
1: I think even like, I, I've seen her in things more recent things and I never know what's her. Like she's, you know, very much like uh, her fellow brat, Brat Pack uh, castmate uh, Anthony Michael Hall, like they don't look like what they did at all anymore. Meanwhile, like Emilio Estevez, still kind of looks like Emilio Estevez, you know.
2: Well, yeah, he and Charlie Sheen just have tremendous genes, and considering all the things that they have done to their bodies over the last <laughs> forty years, it's amazing that they've aged as well as they have. But I'm actually gonna counter as someone who literally grew up watching Molly Ringwald movies. I, when every time I see her in something, I'm like, that's Molly Ringwald. She's in Riverdale. She plays Archie's mom. Oh. And every time she's on, I'm like, that is Molly Ringwald. And, I've uh, never I, watched I, Riverdale. So <laughs> it is, quick side note, it's fun, but it has jumped the shark like 14 times. And it is, <laughs> at this point, it does it on purpose because it's so wacky.
1: It's a CW show about Archie. Yeah. It's got to jump the shark. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, i mean archie well, jumped the shark yes <laughs> yeah
2: He's betty and veronica are and... still
1: interested in him after all this th-
2: <laughs> well i mean when you see the guy who plays him you're like okay yes i can see why
1: <laughs> what well, what's weird about the Riverdale is they were like hey let's make let's make archie twin peaks is the weird part about it it's like okay
2: what yeah, it was loosely based on one of the many iterations of, of the Archie comics. There was one that got real serious. And so it was kind of loosely based on that. But the first few seasons really reminded me a lot of uh, Pretty Little Liars in the way that it was this murder mystery kind of stuff. And it's really dark. And then it it's just gotten super wacky. And it has tied it directly into The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina from Netflix, which was a just tremendous show, uh, and, and uh, they in fact had Sabrina on this season on Riverdale. That was great seeing her come back. But uh, yeah, it's no one wants, to, no one cares. But it, it's fun.
1: <laughs> We're continuing to uh, refuse to actually talk about this movie.
2: <laughs> so let me ask, since this is something that you often ask your guests or, or you talk about uh, prior to this episode, what is y'all two's experience with Pretty in Pink?
1: Dylan, you go first. I actually have not seen this one. Um, I've never really been into a lot of the Brat Pack movies. I've seen 16 Candles. I've seen, um, the big one, the the breakfast club, breakfast club. Duh. I don't know why that, why I lost that um, (laughs) title. Uh, incidentally, Justin pointed it out to me earlier that we are recording this on breakfast club day. This is the the date where they're in detention.
2: Yeah. Um, Yes. God, that's another great movie that actually also has a, Okay, soundtrack. It's got a couple of really good songs on it. It's got the Simple Mind song, and then it has a Wang Chung song that's pretty good. Um,
1: sure. I'm trying to think what what are considered officially considered the Rat Pack moves. <laughs> like, I mean, if Ferris Bueller counts, I do like that one. So, Saint I, almost
2: fire as well.
1: I actually had like a uh, a little bit about that in my notes. I was like, what does what does count as a personally does Ferris Bueller count as a Brad pack movie? Because it doesn't really feature anybody from any of these movies. To me, the Brat pack movies yeah. are, if it features one of the breakfast club, <laughs> you know, car- actors in a John Hughes and maybe two, maybe you need two. I don't does know. weird science count? See, that's what I'm like. There's only one of them in there. Yeah.
2: Well, well there actually is a, a Wikipedia page on the Brat pack and it has a filmography So uh, if if you want to, I can run down this list real
1: quick. Which ones are official? Uh,
2: The Outsiders from 1983. And you talk about a movie that has a cast that like everyone on there went on to be famous, except for like Ralph Macchio or (laughs) the the guy who played um, uh, Stay Stay Gold. Uh, What? The guy, Kitty was, uh, anyway. Uh, The one who gets burned. Yes. Pony Boy? Um, Pony Boy. Yes. Thank you. He did not have as great of a career. Uh, Class. (laughs) I don't know this movie yeah let's see yeah, 16 candles yeah uh, o- oxford blues mm. uh the breakfast club san almost fire pretty and pink blue city about last night wisdom uh, what what are those uh, movies f- yeah fresh horses what the hell uh, <laughs> betsy's wedding and hail caesar i mean these all were well it's hail caesar's from 94 who the Oh, it's got Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey Jr., Samuel Jackson, Judd Nelson. Oh, that's a cast.
1: Okay. I, so, what makes it a Brat Pack movie? If there's more than more than one of the Brat Pack, I think is yeah is maybe what makes it official.
2: I think so. Not that there's an actual definitive list or, or yeah. anything.
1: Uh, yeah, because I feel like people like Ferris Bueller as being a John Hughes. Like, I feel like that's and it's very much in the same like teen movie kind of mentality like mm-hmm. yeah. filmography of the 80s I feel like that fits like I would like I would say say anything is a Brat Pack even though it's not it's like, neither a John Hughes movie nor a, a, a Brat Pack member yeah none of those actors are Brat Pack but it's like adjacent to that it's it's so much in the same
2: yeah vein well, I would Q-6. argue that it's in the same vein but it is not a Brat Pack right. movie because it the thing about Brack to make something an actual Brad pack movie, I think it does have to have certain specific cast members yeah, and which is pretty much everyone in, in the breakfast club and San almost fire. I think that sums it up. And to some extent the people in the outsiders, but really it's you focus around breakfast club and San almost fire that gets just about everybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those are the key. Those are the key members. Yeah. But, uh, like, so, uh, Dylan, you you said you hadn't seen this one before. Um, yeah, no, this one, I this one I've just never seen. I don't, I don't know why. I've just never caught it on VH1 at the right time. I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was gonna say that I have seen it before. Uh, it's I don't I don't think it's been ten years since I've watched it. Um, I definitely remember watching it in my old apartment and before I got married. And this will be my this year will be my eighth anniversary. So. It's either nine or ten years since I've seen it. Um, yeah, it was uh, on Netflix, I think, and that's why I watched it. Because I, I always had, like, strong opinion. Like, I, I always liked The Breakfast Club a lot. So, um, I was like, I'll watch this one and really liked it. Like, it's really, really great. Um, Dave, when did when did you first
2: see it? Oh, I probably saw it in 1987, It was, I know I did not see it in the theaters, so I saw it on HBO and I was hooked from that moment on. I I saw The Breakfast Club the same way. And in fact, I remember in being in like fifth grade and having discussions about The Breakfast Club, which probably a fifth grader should not be watching. (laughs) But there was one of the best, best days at school was the day after the very first broadcast airing of the breakfast club where they had to do these terrible overdubs of the (laughs) curse words. And it was hysterical and we were all laughing about it, how bad it was. Uh, But but yeah, I've, I've pretty much since almost day one, have loved this movie. And then when I got into high school and I got into, you know, punk and post-punk and all that stuff, it really, it took on a whole new meaning because not only was it, it's, it's beloved as just a Gen X eighties film. But then for for everyone who is involved in any of those, you know, subcultures or anything, it was like, okay, not only this is this a movie about our generation, this is a movie about us, about the weirdos, the people we get picked on and having gone to school at a time when you did still get picked on for listening to punk rock. Like I, i my high school in Florida, I often described to people as it's, it's like a combination of the schools in pretty and pink, the breakfast club and pump up the volume. <laughs> so it was not fun to, <laughs> to be there and to be into, into punk and any of that stuff. And uh, all the weirdo kids, we were crapped on and I watched a friend of mine get beaten up. I, one kid got spit on a number of times. It's it's all it's good times. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so there was so much of this film that resonated with me in a whole new way once I became a teenager. Uh,
1: should we? Hmm, should we run through like the basic outline of the movie, or do you want to yeah. go kind of scenes? Like, how do we want to do this one?
2: I think if we do, just do kind of an overarching. Uh, so. And I and I can kind of talk about this if if you if you guys want. Uh, the film centers around uh, the main character Andy. She is from the poor side of town. She is a budding um, fashion designer because she makes all her own clothes. She has a kick-ass car. I can't remember what that thing is called, but a Volvo. Uh, I think
1: it's probably like an eighteen hundred P eighteen hundred or something.
2: The uh, it's a late
1: sixties Volvo. Is it really a Volvo? hmm Do you get a shot of it? I only see oh, yeah. like, the side, really, most of the time.
2: Yeah. Get- okay,
1: there's a picture of it. No, there. no, no. Sorry. It's a Carmagea. It's a Carmagea. Karmage-
2: Carmagia. Yeah, the Volkswagen Carmagia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those Those are great cars. I remember I knew people in when I was in high school who had these. They're notoriously not stable vehicles <laughs> <laughs> at all. Yeah. But damn, those are cool looking. And, and, uh, and a, now, if you get in a car wreck in this, you're screwed. Yeah. This is death trap right here. Uh, she so
1: fifty eight, actually, really, really ahead of its time in terms yes. of design.
2: So she has a best friend. Uh, play oh, Andy is played by Molly Ringwald. She has mm-hmm. a best friend named Ducky, and he is played by oh god, what's his name? Um, dude, John Cryer. Mm-hmm. Interesting side note: uh, if that was almost played by Robert Downey Jr.
1: and Charlie Sheen. Uh, yeah, almost. Cons- yeah, considered. Um, was, was it Charlie Sheen? I thought it was someone else. Was considered for uh, charlie no. sheen was considered oh no charlie sheen was considered for the role of um the role, yeah i kept in my notes i could not remember his name was blaine so i just call him andrew mccarthy in my notes the entire time
2: <laughs> blaine that's not a it's... name it's a major appliance
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, i was gonna say it's funny that you didn't remember his name they have a whole line about uh yeah he um John Cryer's character was almost played by... Anthony Michael Hall. It was Michael Hall, yeah. yeah. And he turned okay. it down because he didn't want to be typecast. Which, if he'd played that role again, it oh, yeah. it would have been just another version of that character. He's already played twice.
2: Right. Yeah. Because he had such a stellar career after The Breakfast Club anyway.
1: <laughs> he He's he, a TV... He, was he dead, dead,
2: dead Like Me? Is that his show? Or Dead Zone? <clears throat> yeah, but that was so many years later. Yeah. But, he dead doesn't Zone. look like
1: that well, obviously, he doesn't look like that guy, any, that kid anymore, but...
2: So, uh, Ducky is madly in love with Andy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Andy works at a record store, which is actually the famed Wax Tracks Records in Chicago. That's what they base off of. I think it might have even been filmed there. And the... Um,
1: the exterior was filmed in Santa Monica. Okay. I don't know about the interior. But.
2: Okay. I know it was based on Wax Tracks.
1: I assume yeah. the interior would have been a soundstage.
2: But. Yeah, it's yeah. called Tracks in the movie. In the film, yes. Yeah. yeah. So then uh, Andy's boss is played by Andy Potts. Her name is Iona. Andy Potts is amazing. She was also in Ghostbusters. That uh, One of my favorite lines is that when the phone rings, she's all mad at Bill Murray. <laughs> picks up, Ghostbusters, what do you want? Oh, it's good shit. She God. answers
1: the phone that way, too, in the movie. She says, like, what do you want? When she picks the yeah. phone up at one point. I think she's talking to that Terrence guy
2: yeah when am i not into bondage since night i spent the <laughs> night tied up in backseat of your car oh,
1: so good uh <laughs>
2: harry dean she was stanton. the voice
1: of uh Bo peep too wasn't she? oh yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah um,
2: designing women yeah yeah andy potts rules she's um, great so the rest of the cast we had harry dean stanton plays uh jack uh, which yeah. is molly ringwald andy's dad and he's just harry dean stanton and he's yeah. amazing um
1: for for uh, uh, Master Punk Theater uh, callbacks, uh, Repo Man's Harry Dean yep. Stanton. Yes. We're we're two out of four movies, right? With Harry Dean Stanton now. Yeah, we to, have we done four movies um, for Master Punk Theater? We did Jack Frost. Yeah, we germs. Did, this. Yeah, Repo Man. I think that's it. Or not germs. The no, Nora, Nick, and Nora. So we've done more Nick and Nora. Okay, two out of five. All right, we need to get some more Harry Dean Stanton movies. He, uh, yeah. <laughs>
2: He was in a great um, uh, Dwight Yoakam video that was from the Gone album, I think. I'd have to look. Dwight Yoakam, uh, by all accounts, terrible human being, tremendous musician.
1: Uh, I've never heard anything about him specifically as a person other than his, like, he has some pretty conservative views.
2: I've just heard you he's know. an ass and okay. a jerk. Uh, which He might just be an ass. Yeah. Which you it's an actor. Fu- very, oh, my God. Sling blade.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Oh, so good. I could quote so many inappropriate lines from that movie. It is, uh, so anyway, uh, back onto this. So we have one other major character, uh, which is Steph played by Mr. Ultron himself, James Spader. <laughs> and that hair, man, that hair in that movie. Wow.
1: Every time he was, I watched it today with my wife and every time he was on the screen, she would say something about his hair. She was like, how did he get his hair that fluffy? And like, <laughs> Shampooed every day, hair dry, mousse. Yeah, um, you forgot Andrew McCarthy.
2: <laughs> oh no, I th- we mentioned him. I think oh we, yeah, we mentioned out. him. We, yeah, yeah. Uh, the only other there were a couple other standouts. Dweezil Zappa has. I a, was gonna a say, small part. He's great in that. That's
1: two is, Dweezil Zappa appearances in Master Punk Theater now. Nice, because he what well, he was in Jack Frost. <laughs> He's
2: in Jack Frost. Yeah,
1: all three of the uh, Zappas were in Jack Dra Drac Frost is a different movie.
2: Uh, Also, Andrew Dice Clay plays the bouncer of the club that they hang out at. The Dice Man. Oh man. See, okay. (laughs) I have, I actually have fond memories of Andrew Dice Clay because I remember watching the MTV Awards live where he went off and did a very uh, foul comedy segment (laughs) that he got banned. Uh, It was, it was so hilarious. But I just his, his shtick cracks me up because he's just standing there doing his little arm gestations and all the the things and it's yeah I, but I know nothing about him beyond those couple of things and that one movie he did which was not very good.
1: He uh, was also in that Lady Gaga movie. Um uh the <laughs> the what's his name? Oh, why can't I think it in the Shallow Lallows song that movie uh the, uh the remake. Um
2: Oh, oh. Star oh, is oh,
1: born? Star is born. He's in it. He's her dad. Weird. I never recognized it. Well, because he's not wearing sunglasses and a giant leather jacket either, yeah. like, in any movie <laughs> he's in. but
2: uh, So, uh, basically, James Spader and, and Andrew McCarthy's character are rich, and the rich kids don't like the poor kids, and it's really segregated in their school, uh, especially for being a completely white school. But again, this is 1986, so <laughs> we'll just... Leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. James Spader's character desperately wants to hook up with Molly Ringwald's character, like super bad. He's wanted to bone her for years, and she's having none of it. She knows he's a douche. Uh, he
1: he seems like he's in a different movie than everyone else. He seems like he's in like a Wall Street type movie or like a, what less than zero <laughs> like yeah. a Brad Eastonella's movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Uh, Let's see. what I'm trying to think of other major pop points. Um, Oh, Andrew McCarthy's character, Blaine, uh, likes Molly Ringwald. They end up going on some dates. He asks her to the prom, and then his parents parents are super judgmental, so things don't go well, and he tells her he's already asked somebody else, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Um, Yeah. So this movie was actually written by John Hughes. He did not direct it, but he picked out the director, which is – uh, I can't pronounce the guy's last name. Howard Deutsch. I think it's how it's pronounced.
1: That's how I would say it.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, Howard yeah. is just for for those who are curious. Married to uh, Leah Thompson. She comes yes. back up, and they are the uh, parents of Zoe Deutsch, who is a now relatively famous actress. Um, and oh, her sister uh, Madeline as well. Apparently, is does some acting. But uh, they're on that
1: TV show I was talking about with Leah Thompson. Uh, oh. I don't know what that show is called, but they've got a show. Um, this
2: was... Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say the director also did a couple of the John Hughes movies. He directed uh, Some Kind of Wonderful and The Great Outdoors. Do we consider The Great Outdoors a Brad Pack movie?
2: <laughs> I can't um, remember who, who's in that.
1: Un, is Uncle Buck a Brad Pack movie? <laughs> I was just uh, thinking of the other John Hughes movies. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, Howard Deutsch, this is also the first film he directed. I watched all the bonus features on the dvd uh this weekend so that's why i know so much of this great information mm-hmm. um oh so, sorry that was my phone
1: <laughs>
2: and i think that did i miss any major before we kind of dig into things anything
1: yeah uh major? laura lauren schuler donner produced this movie um the uh late wife of uh, richard donner but she is me what i know her from is the producer on all of the X Men movies. Oh, she's like yeah. the lead producer on those movies, and it's kind of like you're. Are you the reason why they're so up and down?
2: <laughs> there, there's, I think, many reasons why those movies are up and down, but there yeah. are there are a couple that are outstanding.
1: Yeah, for sure, and then some that are horrendous. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so we're gonna avoid talking about any of the soundtrack really because then we won't have anything to talk about on the main episode. So <laughs> um,
2: I will say, I think the use of music in this movie is phenomenal. Oh, the yeah. way they, they placed things. And yeah, it's, it's just really, really good. And John Hughes is such a huge part of that. He was such an interesting character that he, and he became this recluse after a while. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a documentary made about him, people trying to find him. And they eventually, they showed up at his house. They left what they had filmed, and they were like, We would love to interview you. Here's this documentary we've made, all these people who love you. Apparently, he never watched it and sent it back to them. Oh, wow, weird guy! Yeah,
1: it's weird, weird. I'm like, Why did he? I never understood why he stopped. I mean, I don't know. what was uh, hmm. where does his filmography end with like Baby's Day Out or something like that? <laughs> like, yeah. maybe yeah, they, like that, that third Home Alone.
2: Yeah, stuff got, he got just, his films got younger and younger and younger. Though so, I mean, he did also Uncle Buck, National Lampoon's uh, Vacation.
1: He's got some other weird credits like, oh, yeah. uh, apparently he did the story on Drillbit Taylor in 08. <laughs> weird. Uh, he did write some other things. Made in Manhattan, he did the story. He didn't write the script, though. Home Alone? Yeah, he did the Home Alone movies. Dennis the Menace.
2: Curly he did, Sue.
1: He did a lot of Disney stuff. Flubber, 101 Dalmatians, Miracle on
2: 34th Street. I mean, this guy's filmography is, is unbelievable.
1: Yeah, like you've heard of almost every one of his movies. Yeah. He wrote Dutch?
2: <laughs> That's funny.
1: Um, Yeah, he's... And then he like stopped and he had a heart attack in 2009 and died. And yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting. He kind of just like disappeared in the mid-90s though. Or late 90s rather. Yeah, I he stopped directing. Most really sure. kind of really disappeared like kind of faded from Public Eye in like 94. Yeah, His last directorial like role is Curly Sue. Has has production credits for like the, because the company that he owned mm-hmm. produced like 101 Dalmatians and Flubber and Home Alone 3. I mean he didn't ha- really have anything to, I mean I guess they say he wrote Home Alone 3. Yeah. But I wonder if that's he gets a writing credit because he came up with the idea i doubt he was actually involved in the writing of it oh, this wikipedia says he was the writer i don't know hmm. yeah int- yeah i like his stuff i like most of his stuff he had he yeah i'm so the Weird thing science I think is about... fun pretty in pink is fun yeah. ferris bueller's is really good lands and trains and automobiles is yeah yeah all fun. the john candy home alone, candy the home alone movies are fun yeah it yeah i don't know what happened with him
2: one of the things I think he did that that's real important is he was one of the first people to really take teenagers seriously. Because these teen films do, they, they take teenagers seriously. They take their their emotions, their points of view, and everything. it's It actually really focuses on teens without making fun of them. And, I mean, one could argue that maybe The uh, Rebel Without a Cause was kind of the first film to ever do that. But this was kind of groundbreaking stuff because in the 80s, kids were kind of shit on. I mean, especially teenagers. They were adults, always took adult side against the kids, always. And unfortunately, as a generation, I think we overcorrected on that. Um, but this is not a parenting podcast, so we won't talk <laughs> about that. But it, really, those, those films, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, to some some kind of wonderful not as much because it was at the tail end of that run. But those films were so incredibly important to everyone of my generation growing up in the 80s because it really felt like, okay, here's a guy who not only gets us but d- isn't talking down to us. And this is really, you know it feels like someone is is advocating maybe it's not the right word, but is taking us seriously and that was that was kind of cool. And I mean, teenagers, there's so many markets where opinions of teenagers and everything is taken completely seriously and maybe too much so. But it was it was it was very novel at the time. And um, I don't think that can be overstated or understated. And also these films ended up influencing a whole like couple of generations worth of filmmakers. You There would not have been Heathers without these movies. I don't think there would have been pump up the volume. You wouldn't have had Clueless. You wouldn't have had uh, any number of movies, even that come out now. Uh, 10 Things I Hate About You wouldn't have happened without these films. Uh, and the other thing that I think is really good, especially in Pretty in Pink, is you've got a main character who is a woman, and she is a strong woman who stands up for herself. Yeah, she gets she has troubles, and she gets emotional like anyone would, but she also, at points, does not take anyone's shit.
1: That's one of the things I really liked about her character is that she seemed really together as as much together as someone who's like mom abandoned the, you know, her and her dad, you know, and like she's like the, the artsy kid, the artsy poor kid in a rich kid's school. Like there's a line about her like attending the school based on her grades because she doesn't actually live within like the, you know close enough to the school just to automatically that's her school Mm -hmm. so though i i do i very much enjoyed the super duper on the nose opening literal train tracks panning over to her (laughs) house uh, at the very beginning of the movie it's like she's from the wrong side of the tracks it's just like there's no way you might as well put a whole card on the screen that said that
2: (laughs) it's not a very subtle film no, And also the fact, I know we said we weren't going to talk about the music, but you kind of have to about this. The film opens with the song the movie's based on, or gets its title from, Psychedelic Furs Pretty in Pink. And it's perfect. Originally, the director wanted to do a score. And so they put they did two things. They, they put it together with the Psychedelic Furs song, and they put it together with a score. And little did Howard know, but John Hughes went... Because Howard thought the the Pretty in Pink song was too raw, and if you listen to the original version, which is the one that you can find on streaming services, it is a very raw sounding song. And so he had the Furs go back into the studio, re-record it, and that's the version that's used in the film, isn't on the soundtrack. And in my personal opinion, is the better version.
1: <laughs> so. I think it benefits from them having played it for a while up to that point. Um all right. all right, we're veering into soundtrack talk, you guys. Yes. So we'll talk we'll talk about that. <laughs> put a pin on that.
2: Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, yeah. Very prominently used in the film. Um but I, I really do look like a, back to her character though. So she's basically trying to kind of like hold her dad together who has not done well since her mother left them. And basically, he only works part-time. You know, she's trying to get him to go get a job, like, a full-time job. And, you know, like, wakes him up in the morning. She's basically, like, having to do all this stuff that, like, a teenager should not have to be doing, you know? And even though, like, there are times where she, her, like, age shows, like, she's like, oh, yeah, this is still a teenager. Um, For the most part, she's on the, would you consider this precocious, you know?
2: I don't know what that word means. The, yeah. The,
1: um, I don't, know, hmm, I don't know the actual like dictionary definition of precocious, but like, uh, yeah, it's like, know what you know, it means X above their age. Um, Oh, let's see if I can get this word showing my of a
2: child uh, having developed certain abilities or proclivities at an earlier yeah. age than usual. Yeah. So I would say 50 she... cent word here, man. Look at that. <laughs> Well, it was in I was in my mid twenties
1: before I learned that the word precocious, the I'd heard as, said as precocious, but I'm pretty sure uh, I would read it as precocious or something like that. So I was definitely reading it wrong.
2: Yeah, she's precocious. Yeah, <laughs> she's
1: a she's a really interesting she's a really interesting character, and she's played very well by Molly Ringwald. Like, yeah, she she's balance between having to be more mature than she should have to be but she's also like you know is like a is like a teenager like feels sad when they get picked on and like wants to go to prom and has all of the those those more like childish age appropriate i mean age appropriate not even yeah i wouldn't even say childish but you know those things that younger people experience and feel and she does a really good job of portraying both of those in a movie that's ultimately like mostly just like a fun teen movie you know it's not it's not super heavy i mean there's there's that the the most dramatic scene i think is is when she's talking to um her dad harry dean stanton and they have that like big blow up about how he didn't go to the job interview and, Mm -hmm. and she's like talking about why and she's like I don't I don't know why she didn't say hey, I like I don't know why she left us but she's gone like I've known this since I was 14. Yeah I mean just a little side note I imagine that the job that Harry Dean Stanton was going to interview for was the repo man job <laughs> I, wa- I wanted to make that job <laughs> It's like because he comes back and says that he got a job but he's like he won't tell her what it is <laughs> And like he's he's repoing cars at night. <laughs> yeah, he was driving me around with an alien uh, in the trunk.
2: <laughs> that scene is a spectacular scene. I think it. Yeah, it shows the just tremendous acting ability of of both Molly Ringwald and Harry Dean Stanton. And you're right, the fact that she is, especially for someone in the 1980s and someone who is, you know, an 18 year old the emotional uh, maturity that is shown there in that scene is, is pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Um, Also this film, I can't remember if I mentioned this already, but this film was written for Molly Ringwald uh, Hmm. specifically. um, John Hughes wrote this for her and after having worked with her in two other films. Mm -hmm. So it was, I think he, he, when he wrote it, he had her sensibilities in mind and they had for, they had, considered some other people. The studio wanted to consider a few other people. uh, But eventually I think it just came down to either the director or, or John Hughes were like, no, it's Molly Ringwald. That's what's happening. Uh, They They
1: considered a lot of people. Actually, Jennifer Beals turned down the role that she was actually offered. um, Jodie Foster, Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, Tatum O'Neill and Lori Loughlin were all considered. These are weird choices. They would have changed like, the characters yeah. dramatically, none of them would have been the right. No, I don't think so.
2: Voice, yeah, I I don't pick any of those as. I mean, I can't imagine any of those actors being people who would have been at a punk club. Right. Mm-mm.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
2: Like none of them come come off as all as artsy fartsy. Right. And even jo- though, well,
1: yeah, Jodie Foster. Jodie she, Foster would. She would be a nerd a punk club character. But she wouldn't be this character at a punk club. Yeah. No,
2: no. The If you've remade this movie now and you had someone who was like a Jodie Foster today, you could do this and make the character gay and, yeah. and it would work. Could, mm-hmm. And also the character would probably be just tougher because not that Molly Ringwald, the way she portrayed it, wasn't tough. But Jodie Foster has a toughness to her. Like you... Firmly believe that in any situation, she will kick whoever's ass is in front of her yeah. without breaking a sweat. She will fuck you up.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, have you seen the brave one?
1: Oh, I don't no, know if I, no I have. One's, no one's seen the brave one. Uh-uh. No, I, know. <laughs> uh, um, I, um, I was gonna say. So uh, I was gonna say her her. Age-appropriate behavior really shows with her relationship with Andrew McCarthy. Like, I think that relationship, like, she's she's flirty. They're trying to make jokes. She's not as serious. Like, she kind of gets to like be a yo- you know a young a young adult in love. It with you know that portion of the movie. She's she's caught off guard more often with his character. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are moments wh- where she doesn't. She doesn't respond to things that he says the way that she responds to other characters. She's she's much more reserved when she's talking to him at first. Well, because those other characters don't have Andrew McCarthy's award-winning smile there. <laughs> he just, he, he uses that smile as a weapon. Like, he tries to use it like, hey, it's fine, it's cool, you know. you know? He tries to get out of all of his, you know, mistakes by just being like... I'm Andrew McCarthy you know <laughs> he, he does the he does the little laugh and the smile and he like turns his head away yep that's it every
2: time <laughs> constantly <laughs> I mean he, he was dreamy yeah oh I was, get it yeah yeah it, it's it, that's an interesting relationship between the two of them and I especially love the computer graphic thing where he the computers were networked together and he, he did this very I'm just. I'm actually very curious how they actually made that work in 1986. Like, how much money did that cost them to get a computer programmer to put that little bit together?
1: My guess, it wasn't a computer program. It was literally illustrated that way, and that's a TV screen, not an actual computer screen. It might have been. Yeah, <laughs> that would be easier than actually to programming than to program a computer to do that. Yeah. Yes, because I was yeah. like, is he a hacker? How did he do this? <laughs> Is he is he in war games? Yeah, I definitely said out loud. That's not how computers work. <laughs> that that uh, was a very unbelievable scene.
2: Well, it's unbelievable now. In 1986, it was very believable because we didn't know what the <laughs> hell computers did. No, we didn't have computers in our houses. Are you freaking kidding me? No one knew. Yeah, everyone was like, "Whoa, that's awesome! I want to do that." I also like that, like he's in the library. I guess it's the
1: library that they're in. Or computer lab, she he's in there, he stands up like behind the computer and they're like they look at each other. They don't they don't talk to each other because it's like two scenes later together she says, I like your little computer trick. I was like, You didn't talk about that? Like immediately after he did that? Like <laughs> and then you had another scene between then and this scene too? It was weird. I was like, I think this is a continuity error.
2: Well, yeah. that was in the time when you didn't really talk in the library so it's it's that's the other thing to when you talk about these films and actually I've talked with a co-worker who is her husband's my age but she is I think in her 30s and they've re-watched a bunch of, of 80s films and it's it's so fascinating hearing her talk about them through kind of modern eyes because to me I you know this was I literally grew up in this world I remember what the you know 1986 was like and you look at this now, and it's so different. And I, I wonder, as as younger gents than me, how, how did that? How does that aspect of the film? Is there things that it's just such a different world that it takes you out of it? Is it still? does it as a movie? Does it something that that speaks to you in any way? Not. It
1: doesn't. It doesn't seem too otherworldly to me, and I think that's probably because we watched a lot of '80s movies as yeah. kids. Yeah. That. It was very normal to just see. And we also didn't have a computer until like 99 or 2000 or something like that. I mean, yeah. we had an old Mac computer that we like typed on and would print things. But, but like our library had like a DOS computer when I was a yeah. kid, you know, the green text. So like a lot of that stuff. It's funny. A lot of, a lot of the technology was still very, very common. So I don't, I, this is a random like aside, but I, at work, uh, in my department where, like, we're in a little office area upstairs, and um, occasionally on breaks, somebody will pull up, like, some, like, trivia questions and, like, I, like, know the answer to a lot of sh- stuff that the rest of the people in my, like, department don't including, like, another uh, co-worker of mine who's, like, literally a year younger than me, and I was, like, answering like, question after question after question, it was all pop culture stuff, too, and <laughs> After I answered some dumb question, she was like, "How old are you?" I'm like, <laughs> like I'm only a year older than you. I just watched a bunch of old stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we we watched a lot of old stuff in general. Right. It's like yeah, our pop culture was a lot of the media that we consumed when we were younger was not as current pop culture yeah. as the average person our age. Yeah. I don't know I don't know I didn't know anyone at the time at like age 15 16 who was watching like Red Skelton and Laurel and Hardy like yeah <laughs> you know, videos so I also watch old commercials or like fun like every day yeah <laughs> like almost literally every day old commercials were a trip they, they I were in, I put in the date yep commercials and <laughs> I watch compilations of he does it stuff to wake up I do it to go to bed take.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I sit awesome. and drink
1: my coffee for like an hour and watch was, old commercials.
2: I, I think w- one other thing about this film that is, I don't know if lost is the right word, but there was this is, you know, pre Nirvana. So this is where, other than a few one hit wonders here and there, the whole culture within, you know, half of the characters in this movie was still a completely underground culture. And it was the fact that it was explored in the way that it was and explored relatively accurately, I think was pretty cool.
1: That That is one of the things that is more unusual to me when it comes up in 80s movies, is the way that alternative music culture is not more familiar to the average person. It was still really weird, Um that's something that i'm not used to because i'm used to post nirvana grunge i mean post post hair metal and and like being funk being something that gets played on the radio
2: yeah that was pretty definitely commonly, so definitely not this area i mean you had things like you know madness had their hit with our house you had dexy's midnight runner had their hit so there were artists that had crossover hits but they were you know, few and far between, and almost all of them were one-hit wonders. Uh, OMD from this movie had a gigantic hit, and that ended up being a one-hit wonder for them. So it, it's, it was, I don't know, it's, it's such a to me that's really fascinating as as someone who was in the scene when Nirvana happened, and there were certain things that you know we all knew pretty in pink. And uh, I'll, I'll bring this up on the, the soundtrack episode, but there were you know certain records you were kind of expected, everyone was expected to have. And uh, remind me to, to bring that up, uh, to mention what some of those were uh, when we talk about the actual music of, of, of the film on the, uh, on the main episode. Eagles' Greatest Hits. No. <laughs> no, fuck. The Miller I fucking Band's hate the Eagles. Hits. Oh, my God. You Quick, and son. the
1: Big Lebowski.
2: Oh, I do. You know, I like Don I Henley. love them. I don't love them. I like them. I, I like Don Henley. I like uh, Glenn Fry. Their solo stuff's not bad. You get those four fuckers together, and it's <laughs> nails on a chalkboard. Heck, I like those country covers. When that country covers album that came out in the 90s, Travis Tritt did, uh, oh, going down the road, trying to loosen my load. It's got Coleman Francis on my mind. If you can tell me what that's a reference to. That's, that's a Mystery Science nope. Theater 3000 right there. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's great. I just don't like those guys together playing their music. It's and Hotel California. Garbage. Garbage. <laughs> it's not moves like Jagger bad, but it's bad.
1: I, um, I don't like the Eagles. And I should like the Eagles because of the kind of music I... A lot of the music that I do like. I watched the Eagles documentary. Man, I fucking hate the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> that just... That was like pouring cement on my hatred <laughs> it was just like we <laughs> locked should do that. in we should These do that documentary <laughs> i can't watch it again <laughs> i love joe walsh though but he wasn't he's not he an original yeah he's not an original member um we're not talking about the eagles no nope.
2: you know, so were there any um, scenes that really jump out to you guys <clears throat> oh excuse me uh
1: yeah there's like the most famous okay in my mind the most famous scene in the movie is the uh, ducky lip syncing to Otis Redding. Is that accurate as saying that's the most well-known scene in the movie?
2: It's probably the most iconic scene. I don't know if yeah. it's the most well-known, but yeah, God, I love that. I, I can't imagine. Can you imagine Robert Downey Jr. doing that? No, I not No, no, oh, no, no. I, can't imagine... I, mean, I can imagine him doing
1: it, but I don't want to see it. <laughs> Because the way he would do it, I, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> and I can imagine Anthony Michael Hall doing it, because doesn't he do something similar to that yeah. in Breakfast Club?
2: I mean, there's a whole dance scene in the Breakfast Club. There's the whole Club. dance sequence in Breakfast Club. Yeah.
1: So I can imagine him doing it, because we've already seen him dancing.
2: Yeah, but his, his dancing is not... He does not have the soul that John Cryer has. John Cryer yeah. actually has some good moves. And I'm just yeah. amazed. I'm pretty sure he was wearing chuck taylor's during that and when he did that slide across the floor i'm like how how does anyone get sliding on chuck taylor's i ever tried <laughs> to do that Chuck's, no they, <laughs> they you go flying on your face but yeah that that is a that's a tremendous scene um we should yeah. talk about john crier
1: yeah i was gonna say we should talk about ducky and john crier and all that um first scene that his character comes in i i think i said that boy is gay I truly believe that funny you said that Molly Ringwald thought of that character as gay like she played her character against him with that in mind but John Cryer did not play his character that way he did not think that well I don't know what John Cryer thought he was doing (laughs) okay so that's so heavily it's so heavily coded as like he's just the gay best friend character like he's like he is the template of the gay best friend character in a teen movie. Yeah, in this movie, like it. I don't know how you could think he's anything else. It's that it's and it's to the point. Like it really takes me out of that entire like plot device of him being like the I've been her friend for years. Like it's believable to see him hitting on girls all the time and trying to be like smooth and and because that's I feel like that's a pretty typical like closeted gay guy in the 80s thing to do to be like try to be a, a ladies man because it, it holds that def, you know keeps that defense up and maybe even is like you know wrapped up in like self-denial but his whole like being in love with his best friend and like the friend zoning like that stuff was so hard to really take
2: what, what, oh okay Um, I have never and I'm someone who has pretty darn good gaydar uh, can you still say that actually Am I going to get canceled? (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) as someone who generally is picks can pick up that stuff pretty well. um, I have never once thought of Ducky's character as being gay. Uh, I mean, I actually for many years, I've so identified with his character. I never had that great hair. I never had that great style. So I was never that cool. Uh, or flamboyant or anything. Well, actually I'm pretty flamboyant at times. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but yeah, I'd never wow, I'm I'm gonna have to ponder on this. So uh,
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna kinda straddle the line between the two. So the first initial scene, that's where I get it. I go, hmm, this is gay, this character's gay. And then as it kind of progresses, I'm like, no, he's just not typically masculine like, you know, performing gendered norms you know he's because i feel like in all of those scenes where he is like he's talking to her dad and he's talking to annie potts like all these scenes like he's very much is like he's just not like i'm a guy you know (laughs) like i'm a tough dude you know yeah i mean and i certainly appreciate to see a significant romantic lead in a film be portrayed as not Typically masculine mm-hmm. um i think what you were saying though is the impression is the impression was just so strong in in his first like first few scenes and then in a lot of other reinforced throughout with just like the consistency of his characterization that it was just like it, having to switch like mentally so what I was gonna say is, I think the reason why you may also think that too is because the gay best friend character was very much just modeled off of this character. Yeah. So you're you're you've got you know years of pop culture, you know, character portrayals and shorthand being burnt into your like. Yeah. So you're well, that's how I read that character. But uh, but also Molly Ringo read it that way too at the time. So I don't know. Huh. She said that he was his character. I saw something that his character was almost based on her friend, mm-hmm. like her one of her best friends, which maybe that was just, maybe that's misattributed. And she was just saying that she felt like he was similar to, but, um, but also I have the experience of seeing John Cryer on two and a half men. So <laughs> like, I know what, <laughs> I know what of that it role is just John Cryer versus, yeah. <laughs>
2: I have uh, luckily never seen that show So um, Had Yeah But I, yeah. This is fascinating I never would have Pegged Ducky As being the Prototypical gay best friend Or like the archetype For that I, I just Huh Because this predates The gay best friend By many mm-hmm. years
1: Yeah yeah. Uh, yeah you don't start yeah. to see that Until like What Mid to late 90s Really In teen movies
2: In, in a way It's almost And I I've doubt that, you know, John Hughes was going for this or pulling from, from the source, but it, it's that challenging of traditional masculinity that, you know, bands like Seven Seconds did from like day one mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing that is now certainly far more accepted and far more uh, represented in things. But it just, then it was just it was different. And the scene where he, uh, he runs into the guy and, and uh, mouths off to him uh, and then was, <laughs> yeah. tries to get like talk about stock options or something before he gets yeah. thrown into the uh, women's restroom, which hey, the part where he's he's, he's like you got a candy machine in here, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got doors on the stalls, <laughs> doors on the stalls, um, <laughs> which I mean, so like reading his character that way. Gives more potency into the way that he... I felt like the way that he interacts with the other masculine characters, the other male characters, who are all, like, preppy, like, yuppie. They're pre- preppy or jocks. like the Or jocks. The jocks don't have talking lines, but they're there, you know? Yeah. And the, those scenes are, like, you can definitely... I, I, Reading his character as gay, you can definitely sense the homophobia in the way that he probably interacts with all of the men at his school. Which regardless of whether or not the character is gay, like, not being traditionally masculine, like, I guess. He was definitely called the slur for gay people, which does show up in the movie, and it's not aimed at him. It's, it's yeah, thrown at a, <laughs> Andrew McCarthy, which... That was an interesting There, I wanted moment. to bring talk about that, though. Like, so, we all know that 16 Candles did not age well. Like, that's the one that's just, like... Jesus Christ! What did they do in this movie? <laughs> like, who thought this was okay at the time? Even um, I'm not gonna lie, cl- though.
2: At the time, that shit was hilarious. <laughs> uh, oh my god! And I, I know I'm going to hell for, for many reasons, uh, but one is for probably still thinking Vong Duck Dong was. Hysterical, but I, st- <laughs> I see that through like 11 year old eyes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's imprinted on you. Yes, it really is. But yeah, no, um, it's so. Uh, so here's, I think I'm, I think I, I sense where you're going, uh, Justin, but is this begs a question is of the teen John Hughes movies, is Pretty in Pink the least problematic?
1: That was my whole thing I was going with. I think it's the least problematic because the times that there's really only two lines in the movie that I was like, eh, they probably wouldn't say that anymore, but also, a real life teen would say that like there's an F bomb in here and there's an R bomb in here and 16, 17, 18 year olds would use those words. So yeah. it, to me, it's the least problematic. It's also not the, because it's only in those two scenes. It's not like the whole movie, like breakfast club that uses it a lot more because a bender, like he you know, throws it around a lot. Mm-hmm. And even Emilio Estevez, I think throws it around too. Like that's their characters too. I also yeah. can see that because they're the artsy kids, they're the end the punk stuff. They're not throwing that word around themselves. So
2: right, yeah. well, it like, makes sense
1: why it doesn't show up
2: as much. The person who who uses the F word and uh, yeah. that's the one that it means bundle of sticks for those who are wondering, uh, <laughs> yeah. that is played by the, you know, that's said by the ultra mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, bitchy uh, blonde chick who is just the bane of Andy's existence. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. But th- yeah, that, that that scene where – so if you haven't seen the movie, um, Andrew McCarthy's character takes uh, Molly Ringwald's character to a party. Uh, first of all, not a good choice. Whew, and awful. it's it's hedonistic 80s party good times in Richville. And so he's like, let's go upstairs. And she looks at him like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and I love – she has this line, I'm not here to get you off. And I'm like, yeah. that, that's brilliant. Uh, but yeah. He so to to show he's not there to to do anything shenanigan wise. He puts his hands in his, his pockets and mm-hmm. literally this guy wears like blazers all the time, like Don Johnson esque yeah. blazers. And he's not the only one. So many people in this movie wear these things. But he yeah. picks up like a, a twelve pack of beer cans and holds them. Does the whole uh, gimmick where you hold it between your elbow and your your ribs and then picks up a bag of pretzels. Cause these are just randomly sitting on tables and in his mouth. And they go upstairs to a bedroom to which they find Steph in a robe and boxers. Uh, and then what's her face? Um, Benny. Benny. Uh, yeah, yeah. comes out of the room of the bathroom and looks like they probably just banged and we're going to bang again at some point. And, uh, that's when, when she notices Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy there, she just is not a happy camper. Um, uh, and it's it is a it's a well acted scene but it really does kind of draw this interesting line of where where Blaine's character doesn't seem like a complete a hole but he obviously has grown up with a bunch of people who have become complete a holes and Andy is so incredibly uncomfortable from the but even before they get there you could tell yeah. her skin is crawling before they even leave like she's yeah. like a party really yeah. yeah. Your friends, you know, she didn't want to go in the first place. No, no. And of course, there's that great line you want to go home and change? I already did. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it is, it's so uncomfortable. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's completely teenager. And it's things that teenagers would say to this day. Yeah. Having been around teenagers at my job, I have heard both the R and the F words yeah. dropped on a fairly regular basis. I've heard them from adults I work with. So, <laughs> well, that's
1: different. That's a, <laughs> one of those baked in generational yeah things
2: yeah I, I i'm not gonna lie i used the r word for years and uh really? it was someone's was in fact it was my wife i said it one day and she's like you shouldn't say that anymore and i thought about it. i was like oh uh, that and, and glee not gonna lie glee taught me that that the r word is bad uh, so i was like okay that's <laughs> i learned i, I i've definitely
1: had to have that conversation with other friends too i'm like hey
2: don't say that word anymore
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) like really and they're like oh okay you know like they get it they're just like yeah i guess that's true (laughs) yeah Yeah, that one's that one that one's still hard to get rid of honestly that one's surprising it'll pop up and you're like whoa yeah
2: The, i think the interesting thing about that word is now how how much when you do hear it uh, once you it's it's the glass breaking moment once you kind of become aware of the problems with that word and why it is so unkind to say mm-hmm. the, and then when you start to hear it you it's like ugh. you, you yeah. have a, at least i do i have a visceral reaction i, I have a coworker yeah. who when she gets really upset she will say it and i was i actually talked to my boss about pulling her aside and saying, Hey, you really need to not say this word <laughs> uh, at, at, at least at the very least. Do not say this on the floor around customers yeah. or around other members of staff within the organization, because you don't want the wrong person to hear this. Yeah. Are you saying this? Cause this could end badly for you. Right. Uh, yeah. Like,
1: the type of person who could uh, make it a really big problem for you if, right. if if they hear you say it, you know.
2: Yeah. So since we talked about a scene with Blaine's character, what are your thoughts on him?
1: He to me feels the most like a teenager out of all of them. He's he reminds so the way I thought of him was he is this like he means well, and I think at his core he is a good person but because he's come up with all these other rich kids and all these jerks like he sees it like this when they go to the party he's like oh my he's, friends are assholes like he says it i think yeah he yeah he sees that the culture that he's been a part of for so long he sees it through someone else's eyes and it's like uh mm, oh i didn't think about this yeah he's well meaning but he makes a dumb mistake of bringing her there but then but then i think he turns into a chicken shit (laughs) yeah no he does he does he he caves in he caves in the scene he says i want this to work it has to work let's make this work and then like you just they just cut to his face and he's like he's already bailed how did how did he do that so quickly
2: because you because there were a few scenes before where uh steph's character was putting that that hint in his head about mm-hmm. your parents are not going to go for this. They are, and I think there was a line about I've seen your mom tear into you. She's vicious, yeah. <laughs> but that's also very true to a teenager. The the one thing I think I like about his character, and also another side note, you talk about a character who is not traditionally masculine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he is not, uh, but the the he actually shows emotional growth. He does grow as a character. He evolves. And there's that scene after they go to the party, they go to the club, which I want to actually just talk about the club here in a second, but they go to the club where uh, all the uh, uh, freaks hang out and a couple great bands that they play. One of them is actually a band called the rave ups that you can find their stuff on streaming services, but they say, so they go to this club and he gets to experience what all of those, uh, basically Andy and all of her friends experience at school and everywhere else. And you can tell he's he's starting to have this realization like, oh shit, this sucks. Yeah. Um, it takes him a while to really deal with it all and process it, which is also pretty realistic. You're not gonna be in a, a scene in you know, in a situation that immediately go, Oh, this is screwed up. I need to change the way I behave right this second. That does not happen. And if you expect someone yeah. to do that, you don't understand how the mind works. Uh, right. so it's he's I think he's he's just an interesting character. I'm I think his character
1: I think his character does progress and grow and and has perceptions challenged and like in a realistic way. but I do think the movie does not the best job of portraying it happening because I feel like after they split and then um she goes to the prom by herself and then they get back together. Which this probably has a lot to do with the fact that the ending of the movie was reshot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very sudden that he's changed. Like it, it, that, reali- Like I think all of his realization happens off screen,
2: and there's some kind of um, not montage moments, but there are moments where you see him in the background. Actually, I guess it was would be considered montage where uh, mm-hmm. there's everyone's getting ready for the prom, and you see him sitting there pensively mm-hmm. drinking coffee or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and man, why are all these guys dressed like they're, you know, going to business meetings
1: <laughs> all the time. They're all wearing blazers all the time.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, but you know, I do, I think that, that you're right. There is a, a very dramatic shift and I do want to talk about the ending, which I think we should probably get to yeah. soon. Um, but what did you think of the club that they I had? I thought it was really The punk cool. club? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought the punk club was awesome.
2: It the was like really cool.
1: It was like dingy. It was dingy in the way that like the t- I've been to punk clubs like that. You know, maybe not with this cool lighting, but like, but also like they didn't do that thing where it's like a dangerous club, like because Andy's hanging out there. So like naturally yeah. it's going to be a little bit. You know, it's a cool place to hang out. Yeah, um, yeah, I really liked it, and I really liked the first band that we see play. They play that song Rudy. Yes. uh, Like a, like a Neo ska sort of song. And I have notes about that, which we can talk about on the soundtrack episode. If we ever get to it.
2: Yeah, Uh, no, we will. (laughs) We will. The, um, one thing I like is that it is, it, it, that portrayal does not go into all of the stereotypes in the eighties that you had about punks, about them being dangerous and everything. Like you said, it was just a bunch of weird kids hanging out together and they're really not behaving any differently than the rich kids did when they hung out together, talk, drink. Just, I mean, they're less hedonistic, which may or may not be that realistic uh, because, you know, you get alcohol involved and people just act stupid. Um, yeah. But I, I, I always loved, loved that whole vibe in those scenes in the club. And and of course, the the scene where, where Ducky plants one on Iona <laughs> and just. I love that he immediately, A, apologizes. Yeah, yeah. And and then her just look of shock, like, what just <laughs> happened? And then her admitting later that, like, his kiss would, like set her on fire was yeah. hysterical.
1: I love Iona. Like, that character yeah. is so good throughout the whole movie. Is she the heart of the movie? She's the... I don't know. What would you call that type of... Um, her and Harry Dean Stanton are kind of this like the guiding light of the movie almost. I don't know how it's you'd describe. I mean they're they're the parental figures. I mean yeah. Harry Dean Stanton is her literal dad, but Annie uh Annie Potts, Iona's character is um he's kind of a surrogate mother, I feel like, or almost an older sister kind of character. I, I was trying to figure out how old she's supposed to be in the movie. Shh. She's supposed to be like 15 years older than Annie, I think is what she says. Does she say that? Okay. So I was trying to figure out in her prom dress or in her like beehive hairdo, I was like, it's too late for that. Like it, for her to have been in high school and have a beehive in, I figured out it was either 69 or 70. I was like, I don't know. That may be too late, but maybe she grew up in like a rural or like a more, uh, not as city focused uh, area. I think... The, oh, go ahead. The geography of this movie is... Where is this movie taking place? Like, I know where it it's shot. It has to take place it's in, in a major city because she lives in Chinatown. <laughs> yeah, she does. It's, it's shot in LA.
2: Yeah, it's a Chicago suburb is where it takes okay. place.
1: It's a John Hughes okay. movie, so it's, yeah, so that's, it's Chicago suburbs. Yeah. yeah, I think her... I. Th- she talks about doing drugs in the 60s, and then, like, she's kind of a punk... She was kind of a hippie, I think.
2: Maybe she's supposed to be older. Yeah, she's... I always kind of thought she graduated high school in the early to mid-60s. Um, she was... Because the thing that I think we forget, especially now in 2022, is how close the 1980s were to the 1950s. Yeah. yeah. So not that far away.
1: I figured she had to be playing older because... I looked her up, and like at the time when the movie was shot, she was like 33 yeah, so if she was like eighteen or seventeen, it'd sixty nine or seventy. So, I was like, I mean, she must be playing like thirty seven or something like that, you know?
2: Yeah, I always i see I always assumed that she would be like my parents' age. My parents were born in forty five, mm-hmm. so I just assumed and that she was around that age, because that would have been you know thirty something was the big thing in the mid eighties, and that's when baby boomers they're about age ish. Rangish was getting there um so
1: right when she does her little yuppie turn with terrence and she's like singing to the copacabana like that's where i was like she's supposed to be older than she actually
2: yeah is. she is God, in her I, hair
1: I, yeah i would say like 40 <laughs> is probably more realistic she's that. wearing the sea wig <laughs> <laughs> that scene <laughs> this is so oh great. yeah <laughs> i loved her apartment yeah <laughs>
2: Yeah, everything about she's one of my favorite characters in this movie. Everything about yeah. her was fantastic. But uh, speaking of wigs, we should probably talk about the prom scene.
1: Yeah, we should probably we should this should probably be like our push to wrap this up. Yeah. So you want to start with the prom scene?
2: Yeah. So uh, real quick, for one, it, it was reshot. So they originally shoot this the film, and she, Molly Ringwald's character ends up with Ducky. And they did a screening of it, and the audience literally booed. And they were like, oh, fuck, uh, we need to change this. <laughs> and so they called everyone back in. And at this point, um, Andrew McCarthy was doing a play in on mm-hmm. Broadway. He would lost a bunch of weight and shaved his head. So if you're watching the scene, you're like, why the fuck does his hair look so different? It's because it was a terrible wig. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, he also, I in that scene, I'm
1: like, this was shot way later because he just looked different in general. Yeah. I guess face didn't even look the same.
2: And I didn't know that at the time, like for years until I think I was watching the bonus features on the DVD. I did not realize that there had been another scene because one of the things that uh, uh, urban legend as, as it goes is that they, John Hughes made um, some kind of wonderful as a, a make good for the ending of pretty in pink for the fact that she ends up with Blaine, they fix that problem in some kind of wonderful because the, the two nerdy characters end up together, which that's also a very good movie. It's, I don't know it near as well, um, but it, it's so, so yeah, so she makes her dress. She takes, uh, Iona's dress and this dress, her dad got her and makes a, a pretty dope ass dress, to be honest. I mean, that was cool looking dress. Um, shows up at the prom and Ducky's there looking very suave.
1: Yeah. Uh, His outfit's great too. It is. It's like a green
2: suit and the bolo tie there. I love Mm -hmm. bolo ties. I used to, I tried to wear those bolo ties at a point in my life. Uh, I don't think I could pull that off now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I, actually, I love the way the film ends. They, they go in there And, you know, Steph is drunk, and when he – I love that part when he's talking to people, and he sees Ducky and um, Andy walk in, and he's immediately scanning the room. He's like, where's Blaine? Where's Blaine? And then he beelines it for Blaine. He's like, I'm going to mess with this guy. And that's when kind of Blaine finally puts everything together, and he's like, you've been trying to hit this for years, and she thinks you're crap. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that whole moment. And even the part where the callback to the earlier scene where where are uh, Blaine tries to shake hands with Ducky and Ducky won't shake his hand. And then when they meet in the club and then, you know, he puts out his hand at the prom to shake Ducky's hand and they and Ducky finally shakes his hand after a little bit of grandstanding. Uh, but th- I will admit watching the scene, the moment where he tells her that he loves her. Spoiler alert. uh, That did sit a little weird with me. But then I'm like, yeah, but you're at 18, man. You fall in love hard and fast. So I could forgive that.
1: Um, And he's also been shown to uh, repeatedly make dumb uh, (laughs) mistakes. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) And say things without thinking. So it's it's not too out of character for him to profess his love to the one that he really just has a maybe strong infatuation with, but it it's, I do think, I do think it is very abrupt because of how they changed. They had to change. They had to basically cram it in at the end of the movie because that whole scene, because I, have you watched, is there, is there an existing cut of the original version of the film?
2: It's not that I know of. And the, the, the DVD that I have does not have the original ending on it. So, uh, original They must ending. have, like, burned it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um.
2: When they recut it. Yeah, I didn't cause... see
1: anything about, like, the original cut, because I would like to see how it plays out differently. Because there's not much movie left. Yeah. Like, them showing, like, I would see it being that they both show up at the prom. She decides to go to the prom herself, by herself, and then Ducky shows up, and then, like, then they have, like, a reconciliation, and, and she... Decides to go out with him, like I, that's how I would see that playing out in the original movie. But there's really not much
2: left. I right. wonder
1: if he was even in the original, like Andrew McCarthy was even in the original scene, final scene.
2: He was. So there, they did show some some footage of it being shot in the mm-hmm. bonus features on the DVD. And there's the moment where they he walks up and basically apologizes. But then what ends up happening is. Ducky and Andy go off and start dancing and the, the dance floor kind of parts like the red sea uh, for them. So it's like fucking Moses and his girlfriend are coming in and they're going to do their dance. Uh, but that's all they showed. They didn't actually show the, the footage. Uh, it's so the thing, I don't think that the whole, that whole idea, well in one way it's like, yes, Ducky should get the love of his life, but she never saw him that way. And I don't think seeing him in a great suit is automatically going to make her go, Mm -hmm. you know what, after all these years, I think I do finally want to bone this guy. His character is really
1: frustrating to me because he's so... He never expresses his interest in her in the ways that he should, if that's what he really wants. But then feels very entitled to her when he does... like. He doesn't actually ask her out, but then he shows up at the record store at the end of her shift expecting her to go out with him and then he's like mad that she's not going out with him that she's going out with someone else. And it's like you you didn't actually she didn't actually agree to that. She repeatedly tells you no. I'm not going to hang out with you tonight. So, um the Whenever I think of the concept of like friend zoning, where that became like a hot button topic on uh, Tumblr circa 2010, um, <laughs> this is that character. He never made, like, well, I would say she is either completely oblivious or she fully knows that he has a crush on her. Um, because he clearly does no one acts that way and it's not obvious that that's what they want you know what they mean i mean they talk about i don't know they talk about she talks about knowing him since they're kids Uh, like i'm assuming this is a like preteen friendship Mm -hmm. um that they've been friends for so long for him to never really act on it because the way that he's flirty and with her is this it's it's the way that he seems to be flirty with every girl that he interacts with in the movie. And he's not actually pursuing any of those other women. He's just like being like, I don't know, it, flirty and fun.
2: Like So the interesting thing is I 100% identified with Ducky's character in this because there is definitely, this is the uh, someone who has serious self-esteem issues. And as a uh, known self-loather, I can, I can uh, understand. (laughs) And it's one of those things where you, you can care about someone or even, you know, you think you love someone deeply, but you are so terrified of trying to say anything that your fear stops you. So f- mm-hmm. for me, I was like, you know, this is 100% realistic, especially mm-hmm. for something in the eighties. Uh, but yeah, it's, no, it's, I mean, it's still, it's like, well, dum dum, you should have said something, duh. But it's, yeah. it's also in the moment when you're someone, when you're that young, when you have, you know, so little emotional maturity, when yeah. you, you probably don't have good role models, uh, you probably hate <laughs> yourself Uh, I mean, he he even talks about he's like, would would I dress like this if if he made there's some comment. So he he definitely does not like himself. So that is not going to translate into I'm going to ask this chick out. And uh, ironically, though, that is not going to translate into someone that is going to be attractive to a potential partner. Unless, of course, you're Christy Swanson and you (laughs) see him in a suit and you're like hubba hubba. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she must have
1: been like I don't go to this school I'm just here I got invited <laughs> doesn't know him <laughs> I would his character his character is it's believable in like the whole like pining for someone that yeah that you like that that's totally believable in his character it's simply not believable to me that they would actually wind up together so, so that was my thing like he was a jerk about the whole thing like and I get it he was upset or someone he's been pining over for years and, like, he's upset about it. But he also, like, he was such a jerk about it that it's, like, she's not gonna come back to him. Like, not... She might... They might be able to stay friends later, but she doesn't see him as a romantic partner. Clearly didn't in the first place anyway. And uh, he was such a jerk about it. Apparently, like, people now, retroactively, want the original ending. Like, it's a weird, like... There's been, like, a re... Like, a turning of, like feelings on that movie and saying that she should wind up with Ducky but I honestly think the actual best ending is she winds up with either one of them. Oh yeah. Well which is kind <laughs> of which is kind of what happens I know they do get together and in the end but I think it's very easy to read that scene The them getting together as being like they end up breaking up like two years later. Oh yeah, (laughs) she doesn't marry Uh, him.
2: She doesn't marry him. It's not
1: they're not truly in love. It's not a fairy tale ending. Yeah. Um. But you you do kind of get that satisfaction of like her not being with, ultimately not being with either of them in the way that she decides to go to prom for herself. Yeah. And in that self assurance and being like I'm going to go and I'm going to have fun. This is what I want to do and I don't need a man to make this an, you know, an important night in my life. Yeah. My you know, teenage life or whatever. Yeah. So
2: like, and that was just important to her, I think to stand up to, and she even says this to her dad, she's going to show them that, that they didn't win. They didn't beat her, but I mean, you look at the film and who is a more likable character, Ducky or Blaine? And the answer is Ducky. If you walk away from this film and you're like, "No, I think Blaine's my favorite one," I'm gonna be like, uh, "Really? <laughs> no,
1: Blaine's the one with the least character out of a, like personality-wise. He's like the the blandest out of all of them to me.
2: Uh, oh yeah, he's milk toast. It's
1: it's he's m- just like he's got that cute little smile. That's it. But yeah. like, it's not Ducky can yeah. be grating, and I would have been very annoyed by a Ducky if I had one in my life. I think. I wouldn't have been a bully. I'd probably still been a friend with him. But I'd also just be like, you know, I like Ducky and all, but sometimes I just wish he would calm down like that. That's how I would feel with Ducky. Ducky is the friend that gets on your nerves sometimes. Yeah. Deep down love, but they're (laughs) they're just like, I can't deal with you right now. (laughs) So, but ultimately, ultimately, I would want to be friends with Ducky. Yeah. You don't want to spend all your time with him. Blaine. But, but yeah, like see the thing that i think the thing that blaine has going for him is that he is he is genuinely apologetic Mm -hmm. when he realizes that he's done wrong and he shows that earlier in his characterization as soon as they get to the party you can see it on his face that it's like oh i've made a huge mistake like this was not the best uh, idea and then and then he's like he does it in like He is apologetic and is like then disarming and and charming and like isn't like, he doesn't go on any kind of like big tirades or anything like that. Yeah, they, they, he handles any, I think he even, I mean, yeah, he definitely does like the uh, chicken shit thing and breaks up with her because he's like, oh, I don't want to embarrass myself to my family, rich friends. I think family family." was the thing he was more concerned with. Yeah, I mean, Steph really lays it on mm-hmm. later in the way that he. It definitely seems like Steph's, which he's playing a game because he's just like I can't have her, so I yeah. don't want you to have her either. But yeah. his, like I said earlier, his character feels like he's in like a completely different movie. He has like very bad motivations and <laughs> ulterior motive for everything he's doing.
2: Yeah, he's got. I want to be evil.
1: Yeah, I want to see. I want to see him playing. A character who looks and dresses like that now with, like, a big wig on. (laughs) Playing that character in, like, a crime movie. (laughs) Okay, that would be kind of cool. The way way that he's playing the character, which I guess I'm... He could have. He has, like... 30 years of film, you know, yeah, filmography he's, he's probably done something like his that.
2: Poor hair though. You talk about a guy who went from having great hair to having not great hair. Bless his heart. Um, so real quick, before we, we do finish up on this, uh, I do think that both Blaine and Ducky do show emotional growth. Cause you do, there's that at the very end, there is that moment where, where Ducky lets her go and he realizes mm-hmm. I have to move on. And then one of the greatest moments in American cinema ever when the aforementioned christy swanson uh she ch- is checking ducky out and he he sees her and he's like moi and then he looks directly in the camera and walks off <laughs> toward her i i mark out for that scene i popped for that <laughs> so hard every single time and and they discussed it, it, it apparently they discussed and they were like oh why not let's give it a shot and if it doesn't work we won't use it uh, I th- yeah. I think that is one of the greatest moments because it's just so much fun.
1: Why did John Cryer disappear after Pretty and Pink and not reappear until Two and a Half Men? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he did stuff in that time period, but like nothing notable, right? Mm. I I feel like I'd never seen that man before when <laughs> I, when I saw Two and a Half Men for the first time. Oh, he's in Superman Four. Yeah, that's I what forgot did he's in that. Yeah, that's it's probably that is what hurt his career more than anything. Like, oh, you're in that turd? Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's was in he's been doing stuff it looks like almost every year or every couple of years, but it's none of it's big at all. Yeah, yeah I think
1: he he had auditioned for Chandler in Friends. That've been a very different role. He was on an episode of The Outer Limits in <laughs> 1996. Yeah, he, he didn't really. He, re, he really doesn't have
2: anything though.
1: He didn't land until like, he's there's, just got there's one. Nothing significant until you hit two and
2: f men. He was in two episodes of Hannah Montana. Wow.
1: Wow. Yeah. Um. Right. Final thoughts on Pretty in Pink before we move over to the soundtrack. I guess. Um, how's How's it hold up as a rewatch?
2: For me personally, I I actually watched it twice before in preparation for this. I, it hold, to me it holds up great, but I also have you know thirty plus years with it. I grew up with it. I was you know kind of part of that a year, few years later, but I was part of that scene. And it so for me it, it's it's a very important part of my life as far as pop culture is concerned. I really like. I I can't. I don't know what someone like. What, what does a zoomer think if, if like my kids watch this movie, I'm wondering what are they going to get out of it? How much of this is going to make sense? I think because it's a fairly universal story and not as completely tied to the, t- to technology of the day. I mean, it is, but it's also not in a way, if that makes sense. Um, I think it, it might translate better than some other movies and, uh, I mean, and you don't have like super racist characters or, or, you know, sexual assault going on. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. What do you, I can I cannot answer that question. What do you, what do you guys think? I really want to know what y'all think. Does this hold up?
1: I mean, ha- having never seen it before, um, and not being particularly fond of a lot of the 80s teen comedy. Oh yeah, Dylan, you were going to say hot take alert. Uh, do the hot take. <laughs> oh well yeah i mean this is better than breakfast club yeah that's my hot take which maybe is not as big of a it's not a nuclear take but well you're also like you don't like breakfast club i don't like breakfast club it's different to it saying times, one is better than the other but you outright don't like breakfast club
2: the, yeah this not- i'll re-watch i will rewatch. i do not ever really need to see breakfast club again i'm actually not surprised that you don't like the breakfast club <laughs> Um, I love The Breakfast Club.
1: Problems and all. And it's probably my favorite. If we're going with the Molly Ringwald 3 Brat Pack movies Breakfast Club's probably my favorite. Pretty in Pink may have aged
2: the best though. Oh I think that goes without saying. For, yeah. So for me The Breakfast Club uh, is special to me in, in a, a different way. In that my brother was John Bender. My brother is that 80's metal kid who did it still does uh, drugs and the burnout. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that was so spot on to me because uh, it just reminds me so much of, of my brother. Uh, but I think, I, I don't know. I you, the, the fact Dylan that you, you think pretty and pink is a better movie than um, the breakfast club. I, I can't say that you're wrong. I mean, I think it actually probably is a better film certainly through 21st century eyes it is it is a movie that you can hand to someone now and watch without having to really say okay uh here's your caveats for this film um (laughs) yeah i mean i mean we've
1: previously talked about the movie repo man which features many slurs yeah (laughs) Yeah. and is very problematic in a lot of ways and i thought it was very fun and enjoyable to watch and something that i'll revisit so that's not you know that's I just don't like Breakfast Club. I think I just ultimately don't like the characters in the story that much. Um more so than like the the things that I find problematic about it. Um but that being said, like yeah, for these for this movie being those kinds of characters and that kind of movie, it has the nice perk of being something that has aged well as in terms of like political correctness. But I think we should wrap up here because yeah. we've gone almost two hours talking about <laughs> pretty and pink, the movie. Sorry guys. And we need And we need to do a soundtrack too. So, uh, no, no, this is, a, this, we're all guilty here. This isn't just, <laughs> we all had a lot of asides, <laughs> but I think we'll wrap up the Patreon here. Um, and then thank you patrons, everyone for listening. Thank you, Dave, for being part of the Patreon episode. It's my pleasure. And, uh, we'll see you on the main show.